0: talking feds is sponsored by our friends at total wine and more rewarding curious connoisseurs with a wondrous selection of wine spirits and beers
1: hi harry here just a quick note on our offerings on patreon we've got a half dozen new ones in the last couple weeks three in the last few days including discussions about the theranos trial the DOJ motion to stay the Texas statute, and the new compromise voting rights bill. So there's a wealth of great stuff there, and you can go look at it to see what's on offer and decide if you'd like to subscribe. And here's our show. Welcome to Talking Feds a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. The week put to the test the adage, as California goes, so goes the nation, with unclear results. No sooner had the polls closed in the Golden State's recall election on Tuesday than it was clear that Governor Gavin Newsom had handily beaten back the recall. And analysts started to sift through the election for clues about the national mood and the two parties' respective prospects going forward. After coming out full Trump in the last few days of the campaign, Newsom's main Republican opponent had conceded and withdrawn his previous Trumpian claims about rigged results. That led some observers to posit that the election had shown that the former president's stranglehold on the Republican Party might be loosening. President Biden, for his part, proclaimed the Newsom triumph as a full-throated endorsement of aggressive COVID policies of the sort that Newsom has instituted in California. The president, two days later, introduced his own path of the pandemic plan with aggressive policies for businesses and health facilities in particular. But ideological holdouts like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis showed no signs of even baby steps in Biden's direction doubling down on their opposition to pushing vaccines, even as cases and deaths spiked in their states. Finally, the California recall drove home the importance of voting rights reform as the Newsom win was abetted by universal mail-in ballot provision that resulted in 40% of the states having voted in advance. And there was a major development on the national scene there with the introduction in the Senate of the Freedom to Vote Act, a voting rights legislation endorsed by perennial pivotal Senator Joe Manchin. The act showed the greatest promise for breaking through the long impasse, including, if it comes to it, filibuster reform. To take a close look at the recall and the issues it raises that resonate on the national stage, we have a great group of commentators, starting with Norm Ornstein, an emeritus scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, co-host of AIS Election Watch, a contributing editor for the National Journal and The Atlantic, and the author of several books, including most recently, One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported. And I'm really proud to say he's a regular on Talking Feds. Norm, thanks as always for joining us. You bet. Next, Jonah Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of the Dispatch Online magazine and also runs the related Remnant podcast and a Los Angeles Times opinion columnist, and therefore my colleague since 2005. He previously was senior editor for the leading conservative journal, The National Review, the author of three New York Times bestsellers, and a frequent contributor to Fox News All-Stars, NPR's Morning Edition, many more. He holds the ASNESS Chair in Applied Liberty at the American Enterprise Institute. It's his first time at Talking Feds, and, Jonah, really pleased to welcome you. Thanks for coming.
2: I feel like I've finally arrived. <laughs> it's great to be here.
1: And not for her first time, Senator Barbara Boxer, who served 34 years in the Congress, 10 in the House, and from 1992 to 2016 in the Senate, where she was a stalwart voice for progressive values. She's currently an advisor to the USC Center for the Political Future. And since 2020, she's been co-chair of Mercury, a bipartisan strategy firm. Senator Boxer, thank you so much for returning to Talking Feds. Good sure. All right. Let's start with the recall proper before using it as a springboard to some broader issue. And unsurprisingly, analysts are rushing to draw conclusions about Governor Newsom's decisive win But the threshold question, I think, is whether that's overstated from the start. It's easy to initiate a recall in California. The state's an outlier for a host of reasons. The results really just track the numbers from 2018 and 2020. So my threshold question to everyone is whether we need to be more cautious about using the recall as some harbinger of the national political winds.
3: I think it's a big deal, and for a few reasons, and this is what I took away, just as someone who was on the ballot 12 times. First of all, we forget how excited the Republicans were at the beginning of this thing, because any governor, I don't care what political party, in the middle of these dual crises that we faced, this dreadful virus and the terrible impact it had on our economy and all the other things in the background was vulnerable. And this was an opportunistic recall, cost over 200 million bucks. But if you go back to all the talking heads, they were saying, ooh, this is really bad. And they added, but it better be a big victory because if it's only a small victory, it doesn't mean anything. Well, number one, I think that's crazy. I'm old fashioned. A win is a win, but this was a humongous win. So I think it is very important, not only for Governor Newsom, but every single value that he ran on. It also shows how Trump has this hold on the base so that they don't seem to be able to nominate winnable candidates, which I think is, in many ways, the national message.
1: Look, it is true. A few weeks ago, not just the commentariat, but the polls had it that Elder could have pulled it out. Was there ever a time when he might have won? And if so, how did it escape his grasp?
2: I'm going to disagree with Senator Boxer a little bit on this, not the last part about the the Trump captivity stuff. First of all, I'm against recalls in general as a matter of principle. I was one of the very few conservatives who was against the recall of the aptly named Gray Davis. But my view is, is I do think there was a brief window here when the recall was going to be a referendum on the pandemic and on Newsom's handling of it. There was a moment there where it looked like he could lose. And then because the Republican Party is so gifted at losing, it elevated Larry Elder as the face of the opposition and gave uh, Gavin Newsom the opportunity to run against someone and something. And it's Trumpism, right-wing talk radio, talking points, all that kind of thing. And it became a choice rather than really a, a referendum on Newsom and the pandemic. And there was obviously going to be a lot of easy fodder to go after Larry Elder with, given that he'd been a right-wing talk radio guy for all those years. And To me, it was somewhat reminiscent of Ted Cruz's last run in Texas, where if it had been a referendum on Ted Cruz, I think he might've lost, because he's not that popular in Texas. But Ted Cruz, if you ever watch his rhetoric during that race, he constantly said, this is about keeping Texas red, this is about stopping the woke left from doing this, that, and the other thing. The second Larry Elder became the face of the alternative, it made it possible for Newsom to run against a real boogeyman and it galvanized and created the voter intensity that he had been lacking in the numbers prior to that. One of my big explanations for why we can't have nice things anymore is that the parties are too weak and that we are the only advanced industrialized democracy in the world whose parties do not control who their nominees are. And the California thing was sort of that on steroids, where a strong, serious Republican party would have tried to clear the field of all of the weirdos and rally around someone really boring and solid like uh, Falconer. Look, we just want to do good government smart things, be appealing to independents. The, the rabid people who hated Newsom would have turned out anyway. It would have sapped away the energy and the intensity from the people who ended up voting against Elder rather than for Newsom. But instead, the entertainment wing of the conservative movement had another Pyrrhic victory where they basically got the front status, not a nomination, and that basically guaranteed that they were going to lose.
1: Do you think as a result? The party now, we're farther away than ever from having a viable and competitive Republican party in California.
2: I mean, what's the furthest out planet in our solar system? (laughs) uh, Is Pluto still a planet? (laughs) Yeah. So Pluto's orbit has extended a little further out, but at the same time in politics, you never know how overreactions one way create opportunities. So it's, it's conceivable the Republican party could come back in some way, but I don't see it in any practical terms.
4: Let me follow with a a few observations. First, on Jonah's point about a strong party, he's describing a problem-solving conservative party. That doesn't exist anymore. It's a cult. And when Faulkner began to run, the first thing he had to do was to say that he would have supported Donald Trump. So he put himself in the Trumpist wing because that was a requirement right now. So that's a critical part of what we're talking about here. We're not looking at two parties, we're looking at one party and one cult at the moment. The second point is, most of us I think are familiar with this phenomenon on the web called drunk history, which is where historians get flat out drunk and then try to describe historic events. The people who put this recall together We're like the drunk historians, except even drunker and probably high on other substances. It is the most bizarre and ridiculous provision that one could imagine. I'm with Jonah, and I'm sure Barbara as well, in thinking that recall provisions are stupid to begin with, that if you have a representative system, you elect representatives, and then you decide at the end of the term whether you want to keep them or not but to have a recall provision where the incumbent has to get 50% plus one, and somebody can end up with 3% if the incumbent gets 49.999 and get elected is beyond insane. And that's what we had here. When you have a candidate who says, how about reparations for slave holders because they took their property away, That's kind of pushing the envelope on ridiculousness and even worse. The one lesson that I would pick from this, to get back to Harry's original question, is there anything you can learn? Midterm elections were always cautious about extrapolating. Recall elections were even more cautious. But if it turns out that what we saw in the exit polls and what we saw in some of the counties that are very strongly Hispanic is a harbinger of other things to come, Where the support for a Democrat from Hispanic voters in California was more tepid than one might have imagined. With an election coming up in Virginia for governor in November, where the Hispanic vote in Northern Virginia, which has expanded significantly, becomes important. And if we look down the road, we're not looking at a group of voters like those on the Rio Grande Valley in Texas who have been there for 150 years, who don't view themselves as Brown, and at the Cubans in Florida, this is a different collection of people. It suggests that the Democratic Party has some work to do on that front. On the other hand, it was a resounding victory for Gavin Newsom, and I think gives him some significant momentum. And you could argue, at least, that beyond having a candidate like Larry Elder, that the abortion decision that the Supreme Court laid down about Texas combined with what we're seeing in surveys by those who are vaccinated against the anti-vax extremists. Those are clearly avenues to mobilize Democratic voters and I suspect a large number of college-educated Republican suburban voters and independents that could make a significant difference looking not just at the election in Virginia in November, but at the 2022 elections.
3: I think, interestingly, I can't really strongly disagree with anything that's been said. I do want to point out what people did say, though, Jonah, when they were asked, the people who voted, and I believe it was on election day. So that swings a little bit more Republican, that the biggest issue was COVID. The biggest issue was not Larry Elder. That's what people said. But Larry Elder definitely gave Gavin a message, even if you're even thinking about it this guy's a wacko. So you're absolutely right if it had been another Republican. But I will just close with this. When i have given some analysis, I honestly think that this election says more about the Republican Party in California. The Republican Party is pathetic here. It's pathetic. We now have 47 percent registered Democrats about 25% or less Republicans and the same number of declined to states. So they're a party that's disappearing. And the only thing I would say that you could extrapolate is as I look back over the years, eventually California is in the lead in a lot of these areas. We're more diverse. We're more interested in issues of the future. It tends to go across the country. I think it was Norm who said This issue of the vaccine and this issue of COVID is unfortunately not leaving us. And so this particular race, Gavin Newsom was very tough on this. He's made a lot of mistakes and he stepped up to the plate, but he has been strong and people approved of his handling of the virus.
1: We're going to move in a moment to COVID. I just want to stay for a moment, though, on Elder and an aspect of it that struck me as interesting. For whatever reason, whether it seemed a political imperative or a pragmatic strategy, Elder did go pretty strong Trumpist toward the end during this period when, in fact, he went from being competitive to the tailspin he was in. He surfaced the notion there was going to be fraud even before any of the votes were counted. So that was interesting in and of itself. And it raises the question whether Republican candidates need to do that even if it's not in their overall interest in a general election. But then second, perhaps more interestingly, he quickly backed away election night and was obviously calculating that at least in California for a Republican to have a future, he can't be basing his candidacy and political identity on the big lie. So what about that? Is it sort of cabin to California or how do you take it in terms of whether the stranglehold on general election candidates in particular that Trump has had to date is weakening.
2: I don't think anybody here will disagree with me when I say that Donald Trump has a major distorting (laughs) effect on what should be bread and butter, obvious good politics and strategy. We just saw, you know, Anthony Gonzalez deciding not to run because there's no room for someone like him, at least in the Ohio GOP, which I think is tragic. But I would caution that we don't wanna get into a position where we're saying Larry Elder did a close study of the data and he made these choices and not those choices because he was calculating his best long-term political interest and all these kinds of things. I suspect that he's surrounded by a lot of people who give him bad advice, who are in a certain talk radio bubble. And that told him to do stuff about the big lie. And it is not inconceivable to me that at some point he realized he wasn't going to win and realized that he did not want to alienate his talk radio audience if he, if he was going back to his day job. And it is not inconceivable to me that on election night, someone told him, you're in a great position to run for real in a couple of years. But you can't go around telling everybody that they shouldn't bother to show up to vote for you if you want them to show up and vote for you. We've now learned that a couple times that the big lie is the greatest voter suppression rhetoric the Republicans could come out with for their own voters. I mean, that's the mind-boggling assininity of it. But the idea that a guy who could say we need reparations for slaveholders and talks about how women aren't smart enough to vote, and all these kinds of things, we shouldn't forget that stuff when we're trying to figure out how he did a calculation of his rational self-interest because he sometimes reaches conclusions that are outside a normal, rational decision-making process to begin with. Reading his mind and then saying, oh, he did this and this shows where the rest of the GOP is going to go. I'm a little more nervous about doing that.
4: What was stunning to me is that when Trump had an opportunity, when he got vaccinated at the White House and did it in private, that it was so obvious that he could have come out and said, look what I did with Operation Warp Speed. I've solved this problem, these vaccines that I created are fabulous, I'm getting it, everyone should get one, and take credit for it and do a victory lap. That he didn't do that tells you about a mindset, but also that he was far more determined to make sure that even if it meant hundreds of thousands of people dying, it would be on Joe Biden's watch and he could get blamed for it. And that started us down this Terrible path where now all the pretenders to the throne, from Christy Nome to Ron DeSantis to Greg Abbott, and to Josh Hawley and all of the others, that what they have to do is come out against vaccine mandates, come out against masks, and basically parade themselves to a cult, and that part of the electorate, all of which could have been obviated and would have resulted in so much less mayhem if Trump had done something that would seem to have been just logically compelling.
2: And this is my point about Larry Elder. There are many, many, many things that we could probably have a whole podcast on, things that Donald Trump did that were not in his political self-interest, that had all sorts of distorting effects on the rest of the GOP, because... Part of the problem with his sort of lizard brain narcissism is that he does not tolerate people disagreeing with him, particularly in his own party. So it becomes this enforcement mechanism where he makes the rest of the party embrace things that were dumb things for Trump to do and dumb things for the other Republicans to do. But then people become ensorcelled by all of this stuff and then it distorts. The Republican Party is seems determined to be a minority party as far as I can tell. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that the one litmus test issue is Donald Trump rather than all the litmus test issues that most of us have spent our lives talking about on the right. And it's maddening.
1: All right. It is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit,
5: and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, we unbottle the truth about wine. Is there really a right or a wrong way to enjoy it? Wine drinkers near and far have lived by a certain set of written yet unofficial rules to follow, particularly when it comes to pairing wine and food. You've heard a couple of them before. White wine pairs with seafood, red wine pairs with big old juicy steaks. And while we like to think of these more as guidelines than rules, some suggestions actually do serve a higher purpose, to help your wine get the most from your dish, and vice versa. One pairing that's not quite as obvious involves tannins. Tannins are the dryness that you taste and feel in wine. They come from grape seeds, skin, or oak barrels. Traditionally, high tannin wines and spicy foods don't pair well together. The dry components of the wine become more pronounced with spice, which makes the food itself taste even hotter than it actually is. But if your intent is to get the most spice from your dish, we suggest you try La Moscota Malbec 2019, rated 92 points from James Suckling. You could find this at Total Wine & More. Pair it with a dish featuring ginger, pepper, clove, or coriander to truly enjoy the spice of life. From drinking red wine with fish to white wine with beef, we say you do you. But there is one no-no that we wholeheartedly live by. Always, yes, always hold your glass by the stem and not the bulb, and there are a few reasons why. Putting your warm hands on the bulb transfers unnecessary heat to the wine. As wine warms up, it will become off-balance and you will taste the alcohol more and more. Not to mention, you can easily avoid smudges to your beautiful glassware. To truly enjoy wine, You can never go wrong pairing the wonderful selection and helpful guides at Total Wine & More. Cheers. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar
1: feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today, we have an explanation of the various violations of New York state law that Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr., may be thinking about bringing against the Trump organization. And to explain it, we're very pleased to welcome Hamilton Lighthouser, a musician hailing from Washington, D.C. He's recorded seven studio albums with The Walkmen, the popular indie band he fronted. And in 2014, he embarked on a solo career and has since collaborated with former Vampire Weekend producer and multi-instrumentalist, Rustam Badmanglish on the album, I Had a Dream That You Were Mine. His newest album, The Loves of Your Life, was released in 2020. So I give you Hamilton Lighthouser discussing the possible crimes of the Trump Organization
0: in New York State. New York's Enterprise Corruption Law and the Trump Organization. Speculation about possible crimes that New York District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. might bring against the Trump Organization and high-up figures in that organization mention as a sort of ultimate possibility the crime of enterprise corruption. What is that and how serious is it? New York's Article 460, the Organized Crime Control Act, or ACA, is expressly modeled on the Federal Racketeer, Influenced, and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. In fact... Similar statutes around the country have commonly been referred to as Little RICO. Since its enactment in 1970, RICO has become one of the federal government's most powerful tools against organized crime. It's a complicated law with civil and criminal applications, but basically it makes it illegal to operate an ongoing enterprise, whether criminal or legitimate, formal or informal, through a pattern of racketeering activity. A paradigm example of a RICO violation is where organized crime takes control of a legitimate business, think the fictional Don Corleone's Olive Oil Company, and it uses it to further an ongoing course of criminal conduct. RICO is designed, in other words, to get at the core operation of an illegal enterprise, as opposed to individual instances of criminal activity, and it provides for substantial penalties of up to 20 years. The statute has been instrumental in severely weakening traditional organized crime organizations. So what about New York's little RICO, the ACA? New York enacted the law which creates the crime of enterprise corruption in 1986. The ACA shares RICO's goal of getting at ongoing criminal enterprises and not just individual criminal acts. It differs from RICO in some of the details, but the thrust of the law is the same. It provides heavy penalties for defendants who commit certain crimes while they are knowingly involved with the criminal enterprise, typically a regular business that has been rededicated to ongoing criminal conduct. For purposes of the DA's investigation of the Trump Organization, the most serious charges that Vance could likely bring against Alan Weisselberg, or conceivably Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr., or Ivanka Trump, would entail allegations that through their efforts, the Trump Organization or some subset of it constituted a criminal enterprise. For example, the prosecutors might charge defendants with converting the real estate business, or a part of it, into a criminal enterprise, dedicated to the repeated defrauding of banks and tax authorities by methodical over- and under-inflation of assets. Not only would such a charge expose the defendant to up to 25 years in prison and large fines, it also would provide prosecutors with greater leeway to introduce evidence at trial. However, to make charges stick against an individual defendant, prosecutors must show knowledge of, and association with, the criminal enterprise, as well as intentional participation in the pattern of criminal activity. For Talking Feds, I'm Hamilton Lighthouser.
1: Thank you very much, Hamilton Lighthouser, for that explanation. Hamilton is going on tour soon, and if you want to know his tour schedule, go to www.HamiltonLighthouser.com slash tour. www.HamiltonLighthouser.com slash tour.
3: Equitable access to high-quality health care is a right for everyone. It's not a privilege for some. Our Health California is a grassroots advocacy community fighting for statewide and federal health policies that advance affordable care for everyone. With more than 1 million health care supporters, Our Health California educates patients, health enthusiasts, and voters about health and mental health care, then connects supporters with lawmakers to advocate for change. Since 2019, Our Health California advocates have sent more than 46,000 messages to their lawmakers and taken nearly 168,000 advocacy actions. Visit OurHealthCalifornia.org to join and make your voice heard. It's free. Again, that's OurHealthCalifornia.org.
1: All right, so on COVID, Biden comes out this week with an 11 page blueprint. Jonah, you've got a more nuanced or negative view of this, both you're not very sympathetic to the anti-vax crowd that you just referenced, but you still seem to see the current policies of Biden, I guess, and Newsom as overreaching. What's wrong with them at the fundamental level?
2: It really depends on the specifics. There was a time when I think lockdowns were justified, and then there was a time where lockdowns were no longer justified, but people still did lockdowns. The science on masking in schools, I think at the very least, is debatable, but I think governors have an incredible amount of authority to do what they think is best for their own states, and even if I think the specific policies are wrong, I don't set my hair on fire about some of them. But you do have some misgivings about the means and the reach
1: of Biden's particular policies and his use of executive power,
2: fair? Five of the six plan- points in Biden's plan, I got no real problems with. I do not like the way he messaged his plan and I do not like the mandate on businesses. When Donald Trump said that he had total authority to do what he wanted to fight the pandemic and overrule governors, yet had people like Andrew Cuomo out there saying, we don't have kings in this country, governors have this power, blah, blah, blah. He was vilified for it by me included because presidents don't have that power. But when Biden basically does something, control F through the federal register and comes up with what I think is a fairly cockamamie and convoluted way of doing a mandate through OSHA, everyone celebrates it. And look, you could actually defend, which I think his lawyers will, what they're actually doing by saying this isn't a vaccine mandate, it's a testing mandate. But he didn't go out and call it a testing mandate. He went out and called it a vaccine mandate because I think he wants this fight with DeSantis And with Abbott, it's a 70-30 issue for him because vaccines are popular and he wants to be essentially president of Vaccinated America, and that's the messaging of it. And I look, I'm cynical. I give the benefit of the doubt on a lot of things. The timing of doing this, when he said that he couldn't do it, when the administration said that he didn't have this power and it was not appropriate, and then he does it on the eve of the 9-11 anniversary, I think politics played a big role in it. But I'm wildly pro-vaccine. I think people should get vaccinated. I'm in favor of state mandates for vaccines. But I also think that there's a role for the federal government. And if the federal government is going to do what it's supposed to do, it needs to be in accordance with the constitutional order.
3: I want to talk about Joe Biden for a minute, just as a human being who I knew and know. So, this is what I want to say to Jonah. I think that Joe Biden, this is my personal opinion of him. I don't believe it was a political calculation to do the mandate for federal employees and OSHA. Here's what I think if I were to say, All of us were in a circumstance where we're standing on the street and imagine yourself in that situation and a child steps off the curb and is about to get hit by a car and we're in a position to grab that child back. We're going to do that. And the adult who doesn't do that, shame on them because they were in a position to help. I think that Joe Biden is very moved and worried about the kids who are now getting this virus. We don't talk too much about it. And it is a fact that most of the people dying are older, but kids are starting to get this thing because of Delta. And I honestly don't think he thought about it in relation to 9-11 and the timing. And I understand cynicism, believe me, because uh, we all have it. You can't uh, live in the world of politics and not know that. But honestly, on this one, he did say he didn't want to do this mandate. He meant that. He didn't want to do it, but he didn't think you would have some of these Republican governors. And I know Jonah's point, he's very much for the Republican governor stepping up. But guess what? A lot of them aren't, and people are literally dying. We're at the point where one out of 500 Americans has died from this virus. Now kids are getting it. So I don't think that this is going to make Joe popular. I think people are so nervous, but I just wanted to say to Jonah, I myself prefer a governor doing the right thing. And he gave the governors the chance to do the right thing. And I just heard stories out of Idaho that just make you just want to cry because they can't take people in now to the hospitals who have heart attacks, strokes, whatever. And they're desperate so the governors, some of them are failing the test. Just to sum it up, knowing Joe as I do, I think when it comes to health care, I honestly don't think he's being motivated by cynicism. I think he's trying to do the best thing to save lives.
2: Just a very quick response on this. I'm happy to, for the sake of argument, I still think cynicism plays a role and political motivation plays a role. For the sake of argument, I'm perfectly happy to concede his heart's in the right place. I don't think he's an evil man or any of that kind of stuff. but. At the same time, and I actually think, contrary to a lot of my conservative friends, that the federal government probably does have the power to do a vaccine mandate, but it needs to come from Congress to write a law, and then the president will be empowered with the constitutional wind at his back because he's implementing the will of Congress. He's not even doing an executive order. He is doing this very convoluted thing through OSHA. I don't have any problem with the mandates on federal employees, which you mentioned. I have a problem with putting this, I think it's programmatically problematic. Even if it were constitutional, I don't know that it is actually the best policy to do it this way with private businesses. But I also think it's constitutionally problematic. And we already know that he has little reluctance to overriding constitutional concerns because he's already done it. He was, again, the guy who said the eviction moratorium thing was unconstitutional. But Larry Tribe wrote something and he used that as this pretext to throw it up to the court where he essentially said, look, the court will probably overrule this. That'll give us a little more time. And that to me, I wrote a column for the other times about that's a violation of his oath. Just like when George W. Bush... Said he was signing a law that he thought was unconstitutional in terms of campaign finance reform, but at least that was coming from Congress. I think the Supreme Court may be the final arbiter of constitutionality in this country, but it's not the only arbiter. Every elected official takes an oath to uphold the Constitution, and when you say you're going to do something that's unconstitutional and let the Supreme Court sort out the mess, I think that's the wrong way to do it.
3: Well, Jonah, if I could just jump in here because it's fun to argue with you because so <laughs> smart, but I gotta say OSHA. It's very obvious. I served in the Senate, and OSHA did a lot of things to make the workplace safer. And it did not take a vote, except if people went nuts, like on ergonomics, they went crazy. But basically, OSHA's task is to make the workplace safe. One of the things OSHA would do if this was a workplace where I'm sitting here is come in here and say, Those shelves have no- they could fall down and hit you in the back. If OSHA can come into the workplace and say, make sure your bookcase doesn't fall in your head, it seems to me OSHA can come into the workplace and say, guess what? You're exposing this gentleman to possible death because you won't have a vaccine or you won't get tested. But he's
2: not. According to Joe Biden, he's not. Because according to Joe Biden, the way you're protected from the virus is by getting vaccinated. And and yet Joe Biden tells the American people we have to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated, which does not make sense logically. It actually does
4: make sense, Jonah, because what we know is you can get the virus if you are vaccinated. You are not going to have terrible results. Statistically, your chances of being hospitalized or killed are very small, but you can spread it to others who are not vaccinated. And you can spread it to those who are vaccinated who can then spread it to others. This is a broader public health issue. And I disagree with you on masking. I think I've read some of the medical journals and uh, stuff from the CDC. It's an airborne virus. And if you're sitting in a small classroom with kids and teachers and the kids are not vaccinated, you're taking a big risk without the masks. I hate having masks in classrooms because you need to be able to see people's faces. It would be so much better. There actually are some masks that can be transparent across the mouth and it helps those who are hard of hearing and in other ways, but that's another part of this issue. I was not a part of the decision-making on why they went for this mandate, but I was close enough to people who were to know that in fact, Biden tried the virtuous republic route. He tried to say, we're all in this together. Let's all work together. The goal now, in part, is to get that herd immunity, which is going to take a significant additional percentage. We saw a lot of attempts, including by Governor DeWine in Ohio, to use a lottery. We've seen other incentives, but there's a stubborn group that won't do it. And most businesses that I've seen, the larger businesses at least, are relieved now that the burden isn't on them, that they're going to be able to say to their employees, hey, we need you vaccinated. And I've seen, by the way, United Airlines, which did impose a kind of mandate for their staff and have not yet done it for the people who are flying, but they've done much better at this than other airlines that were unwilling to do it. When it comes to broader public health, where your own freedom infringes on others' health, I'm willing to cut some slack here. The eviction moratorium, that's another issue. And I was very uneasy about the way in which that was done. That's a failure of Congress, which should have stepped up to the plate. And frankly, it's also a failure of the way the law was written and the administration, that there's a huge pool of money for rent relief that has gone untouched largely that would have ameliorated this problem because you can't have a rent, an eviction moratorium forever. You're going to have to have a glide path out of it, and that's a failure of governance more generally. But on this front, I think the, the way in which Biden handled it and the way in which his task force handled it was an appropriate one. They gave a lot of room to try and do this through virtue alone, and that didn't work.
1: Uh, let me just say, so first, I hear Jonah to be raising objections, not at the level of bottom line policy, much of which he agrees with, but a concern about overreaching federal power and the executive doing it through OSHA. I just want to make the point with my con law hat on that when this comes to be tested in the courts, the argument by the executive is going to be, That we have Congress's approval. In other words, it's going to be about delegation and the parameters of what Congress has previously said as to OSHA. And then we'll be off and running with what's good government and what's bad government. This came up also in the eviction moratorium. There is a broader question that students of government will care about, about how it's done. But I just want to say that it presented more in the paradigm of Congress actually has let us do it. The problem here, I think, and everyone's put their finger on is, is the pockets of entrenched opposition that don't seem driven by principal disagreements with what's good policy. That would be my cynical sense of folks like DeSantis and others. So Florida's getting ravaged, the South is getting ravaged. A quick focus on the DeSantis's of the world. Does he expect that he's on the wrong side, but he doesn't care because his base is going to like it? And at what point does he have to stop doubling down as more and more people are generally making their peace with pretty strong medicine on the anti-vax crowd?
4: I don't think there's a bottom. I think what they've learned is that If you appeal to a larger set of values and the tribal side, an issue of freedom and those evil people who are trying to destroy us are trying to take away your freedom, that you can have a very substantial number of deaths and a whole lot of mayhem and very possibly get away with it. That's my fear, actually. And that's in part because I see even governors like Kay Ivey in Alabama who said everybody should get a vaccine, step back from it. And even though it's it's Alabama, where we saw this poor man had to go to more than 40 with a heart attack, could not find a bed and ended up dying entirely preventable, sort of the poster child now for how this affects not just those with COVID, but those with any other serious problem that needs quick attention. But they're not moving in a direction of trying to ameliorate it.
3: I think Norm is right. they have made their bed and they're lying in it. And I saw somebody tweet the other day, more people died in Florida from the virus than he won by, than he won his election by. I mean, this thing is, is about, I'd like to step back from politics for a minute and be old fashioned because all of us on the show today, we're human beings. So if we just throw away our blue and our red and all those hats and prejudices that we all have, Here's a simple thing. we got to listen to the doctors. you got to listen to the scientists. It reminds me of the battle against smoking when people said, oh, smoking causes lung cancer. That's what the doctors are saying. And the companies refused to step up. They took on the medical profession. And it seems to me it's too late now. It's too late. This has become so politicized. This is nuts. When I don't feel good, I do not call Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell. I'm sure they'd help me understand. I call my doctor. And if I don't like his response, I'll say, you know what? I want a second or third or fourth opinion. And when most of the doctors tell me, Barbara, you better do this and so, or you're going to die. I'm going to do this and so. And how this thing got away from us, I have to leave it to Other people, it's psychological, it's tribal, but to me, it's not about red and blue, and you know, and it's and it's such a truism. You know, the virus doesn't give a damn whether you're red, blue, or any other color. It's just going to kill you. Fair enough. And
1: I want to add some late breaking news. Which is that the FDA has just chosen not to approve booster shots, at least for all people older than 16. There were concerns supposedly about the validity of the data and maybe the safety for younger people, but has recommended authorizing a booster shot for recipients of the Pfizer vaccine who are 65 or older or at high risk of severe COVID-19 all right, just wanted to provide that bulletin. Jonah, you had a point?
2: I agree with Senator Boxer about how this has all gotten crazy and been folded into culture war nonsense, and I lament it greatly. All I'll say is that, just to broaden it out a little bit, there's an enormous amount of psychological literature that says people kind of lose it when it comes to things like pandemics. It goes back Thousands of years, there's all sorts of historical data to support it. Part of our lizard brain does not like invisible, deadly enemies. Forget the politics for a second. People are just losing their minds these days. I think it explains huge spikes in road rage, huge spikes in unruly passengers on planes, huge spikes of sort of irrational tantrums in supermarkets. I think that I've never been anti-mask and I've never been wildly pro-mask. I think both maskophilia and maskophobia are weird. One of the fascinating things in the polls which is what I was alluding to about Biden tapping into, is that the most ardent supporters of masks, the most ardent supporters of extreme measures are the people who are most concerned and most scared of the pandemic and who are already vaccinated. And meanwhile, the people who are least concerned, kind of intuitively makes sense, aren't vaccinated. And the problem is, is that this whole thing, and it has to do with Trump screwing up mostly, but I also think a lot of liberals and Democrats responded to Trump badly and they helped Trump screw it up, is that we have taken the response to the pandemic and massaged it into pre-existing culture war nonsense. And it gives everybody a permission structure to be jackasses. And it's nuts to me.
1: Look, I think this is an excellent point. It seems arbitrary. And how did we get here? that somehow this is folded into the previous irrationality that held the, the country in such a tight grip. I wish we could talk for so much more about the voting rights aspect here, but I want to at least take a few moments on it, just cut to the chase, because a version came out supported by Joe Manchin. McConnell says, no way, this is just the Dems trying to appoint themselves a National Board of Elections on steroids. So it does look like it's coming down to the filibuster. Finally, finally, finally. And Norm, you think there's some reason for the Dems to be sanguine about the prospects that the filibuster will be reformed for these purposes? Explain, please.
4: So you now have Joe Manchin deeply invested in a compromise election bill that actually gets very high marks from most of the people who want to reform the election process. By the way, most of the provisions there in a previous generation would have gotten broad bipartisan support, just as we know the 2006 version of the Voting Rights Act that was blown up by the Shelby County decision passed unanimously in one body and nearly unanimously in the other. And that's not the case now. So what Manchin had said is, I'm going to find a reasonable approach. I'm going to scale back what was in the For the People Act with things that I think are extraneous. And then, because I believe that the rules now will encourage supermajorities, I'll find 10 Republicans who will support it. And he won't get those 10 Republicans. And then his choice is either to say, all right, we'll just have to wash our hands of this, or to go in one of two directions. One is a rifle shot exception, as we have seen with budget matters, with confirmations to reduce the threshold for elections. The argument being that Article 1 gives the clear authority to regulate the time, manner, and place of federal elections and to overrule states for those federal elections to the Congress. The second is to go for a kind of reform that I've actually worked on for many, many years, that uh, the argument being which Joe Manchin has embraced you're not weakening or eliminating the filibuster, you're restoring it to a position where the burden is on the minority instead of on the majority. And you can do that in a number of ways. My preference is to flip the numbers from 60 required to end debate to 41 required to be president to continue debate. And that way you've got a fighting chance of getting a number of things done, including elections. I think there's a reasonable shot that one of those things will happen, probably not till October. And if it doesn't, I would say that we're into a very different situation. Jonah said the Republican Party is determined to be a minority party. I think you have a lot of people who think that you could be a minority party and still win all kinds of elections if you manipulate the election process, including, by the way, provisions that are in this compromise that would keep a partisan group from saying, we don't like those results, so we're going to overturn them.
1: All right. Anyone have anything to say other than I, I, hear here on that?
2: There's an ancient principle that says never get into a land war in Southeast Asia. And only second to that is never get into a debate about congressional reform with Norm Ornstein. So I will uh, (laughs) just stay silent.
3: And I think Norm gave us a really good roadmap to what I hope will happen. Because if it doesn't, I agree with him. Voter suppression, that's going to be what rules. And that is frightening
1: does provide otherwise a real strategy for minority party to keep in their way. So it would be good in some ways for the Republicans going forward. And I do want to say that I think things will look different once Manchin, who's been able to stay back and be wooed by everybody, is in fact invested. And now if the whole thing falls, it looks like he does have some egg on his face.
4: One last thing, Harry, which I want to say to Jonah as well, which is if we get a kind of election reform where majorities really matter, I am hopeful that that will be the beginning of a road for the Republican Party to decide that it will compete for a majority. You can take conservative principles and apply them in a way that you can appeal to a larger group than a narrow base. That doesn't happen now. And I think the only way you can make that happen is if they know they're going to lose elections over and over and actually not be able to secure power, unless they change the way they approach issues and voters.
1: Yes, more eloquently said what I was trying to get at. All right, we've just a couple minutes for our final feature of Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener, and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question comes from Barbara Turkio, who asks, This week at the Met Gala... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wore a dress emblazoned with the slogan, Tax the Rich. What slogan would you paint on your Met Gala outfit?
3: I would say, Vote Sane, Vote Blue.
1: <laughs> okay. What color dress? Not red.
4: Norm? <laughs> Mine would say, Leaving This Elitist Over-The-Top
1: Event. Good. So, over hyphen the hyphen top. I guess it works. Over-the-top, one word. Right. Do you want to...
2: Cheer up for the worst is yet to come.
1: Oh, I have sort of the opposite. And I really do if I were having a slogan, which is, it will probably work out. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Jonah, Norm, and Senator Boxer. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod. Find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't outtakes or simply ad-free episodes, though we do have those there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. Just in the last few days, we've posted discussions about the Theranos trial, the Department of Justice motion to stay the Texas abortion statute, and the new compromise voting rights bill. So there's a lot of great stuff there. You can go look at it to see what we have and decide if you'd like to subscribe. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal team for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Record Edit Podcast. Our editors are Dustin Nouse and Matt McArdle. David Lieberman, Rosie Don Griffin, and Olivia Henriksen are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Ray Cohen Gilbert and Kalena Tano. And our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to Hamilton Lighthouser for explaining New York State corruption law and how it might ensnare the Trump organization. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.